Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Wednesday, December the 13th, 2023, as the year comes to an end. It's hard to tell whether the economy is in good or bad shape. Uh, the Dow is up. It's almost at 37,000, which is astonishing, um, which speaks of almost a boom. Uh, inflation seems to be cooling, but not to everyone. Uh, seems to be impacting people, both literally and perhaps in their minds. What we have um, is anxiety and pessimism versus U.S. dynamism and bottomless vitality. It's hard to know which is going to win. Maybe they will coexist. Um, people tend to be very pessimistic about their economic futures, according to one op-ed writer in the New York Times. And it's perhaps hard to blame them because we live in an age of growing inequality and also in an age of democratic fragility. Of course, there's Donald Trump waiting in the wings in this fragile world order. So what does it all mean? Uh, is unrestrained capitalism and democracy, can they work together? Is the Wall Street boom, is it good for democracy or bad for democracy? One man who has some very strong feelings on this is my guest today, Georges Hugo, uh, is a, a longtime Wall Street observer and participant. Um, he was a, a VP at the New York Stock Exchange, done many other things. But interestingly enough, he's not a defender necessarily of Wall Street capitalism. He has a new book out, Wall Street's Assault on Democracy, How Financial Markets Exacerbate Inequalities. And Georges is joining us from Rye in New York. Uh, Georges, as I said at the beginning, you are, uh, you're a man who spent much of his life working in Wall Street, in stock exchanges. Is, is there something, in your view, structurally incompatible between capitalism and democracy? Or is it just the version of capitalism which seems to exist in the America of the 2020s, which is incompatible with democracy? I think the latter, definitely. I think the capitalism has proved its usefulness. It is impossible to have a, uh, an economy that doesn't have a capital market. The countries who don't have a capital market cannot bloom, cannot uh, grow, and so on. So I don't, capitalism as such is not the problem. But what has happened in the last 10 years, which is the topic of my book, is that over the last 10 years, the abuses of capitalism have been growing up in a number of ways uh, to a point where the inequality between what I would call people who live on a salary or a pension and people who are uh, invested in Wall Street uh, have a very different uh, uh, situation and they feel that they are being, uh, that the, the, this discrepancy might become extremely disturbing. I wonder whether it will be the topic of the these elections, but it should be. Georges, you talk about Wall Street's assault on democracy, that strong language, that's the title of your book. Is this a conscious assault? Are the guys on Wall Street, you know many of them, are they knowingly assaulting democracy or is it somehow implicit in, 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 in the architecture of, of, of contemporary Wall Street? 
that is the key question. And as you've seen in the book, I reject the conspiracy theory. It's just a bunch of operators who are looking at their selfish interest and the combination of all those selfish interests feeds only one part of the population and ignores 90% of the rest. So I am not at all uh, in a conspiracy uh, mode. Uh, I don't ignore the fact that some of those people might have uh, further uh, further uh, ambitions on this one, but I don't think this is the way it works. I've seen them close and personal, and they are basically looking at their own wealth. Georges, um, the historical analogies uh, are obvious. Many people have compared the 2020s with the 1920s and the Wall Street crash that resulted in the rise of fascism in Europe and the crisis of democracy in, in the United States and elsewhere. Are there historical analogies between what's happening today on Wall Street and what happened in the 1920s? Well, uh, the market has become so sophisticated that it's in fact not comparable with what happened a hundred years ago. So a uh, hundred years ago, the, the, it's the stock market who crashed. And it crashed because uh, the Federal Reserve didn't do its job and so on. We are in a very different world. So when you try to look forward, uh, I am not a great believer that uh, our economy is so weak that we might have a big recession. However, we all have in the West and in the developing markets a Damocles sword, which is called the debt. And as you've seen, I mean, we are increasing our debt by a trillion dollar or more every year in the United States. And if you look at it in the rest of the world, it's even worse. So we are having now a level of indebtedness, which is not bearable. And what happened in the last two or three, uh, two years, actually, is when inflation came in, interest rates went up. So the cost of the debt, which was close to zero three years or four years ago, has started to be serious. And what you see is that the cost of interest rates in the United States has increased 35% a year. And it will cross $1 trillion, just the interest of the debt. Georges, you describe the debt as the democracy sword hanging over us. But is that the fault of Wall Street? Isn't the government the one borrowing? Well, as you've seen in the book, uh, the book is taking Wall Street not as the New York Stock Exchange or the stock market. It looks at the entire ecosystem. And one of the reasons uh, why we are in difficulty is because the governments overborrowed, the central banks reduced interest rates, and uh, the corporates could borrow very cheap. And therefore, we got into a, a, almost a nirvana of situations where everything looked fine, except that nobody ever thought that interest rates might actually go up and that we might have to pay for all that. And that is where governments are as guilty as the markets and the market operators. But hasn't that crisis been resolved? Um, the, the crisis, you, you, you make 2020 the key year in your narrative, but aren't we 
over that crisis? I mean, the reason why the markets seem to be up are people believe that the inflationary crisis seems to be cooling. So you may be right that that wasn't a, a, a viable long-term option of making money so cheap, but it's more expensive now. We are never going to go back to the 0% uh, interest rates that we've known <clears throat> just after the pandemic, because the reason why interest rates have been very low is not because they needed to be low, it's because the central banks injected so much money that nobody knew what to do with money and they put it in the market. So we used taxpayer money to put it not in the economy as we were expecting during the pandemics, part of it went there, of course, but most of it went to the financial markets. And therefore, we got a, in a situation where you might remember that in one month, the Federal Reserve added three trillions, uh, bought three trillions of debt and reduced the interest rate to zero. The combination of those two has fueled the inflation, which is due partly to the Federal Reserve policy. And then if they fuel the inflation, automatically you have the boomerang effect. And my question is not that uh, people were ignorant. My question is, how did we not realize that there was no way the economy could absorb three trillion of cash within one month? And we are now at a situation where we will gradually go back. This is why I'm not on a, a crash landing. <clears throat> we are going to go back gradually to the level that we've known before, which is an inflation around 3%, a growth of about 3%, and interest rates at about 5 to 6%. We are speaking with Georges Hugo, the author of Wall Street's Assault on Democracy, a very interesting new book um, about perhaps the incompatibility between the contemporary architecture of Wall Street and democracy itself and george is uh, a lifetime operator if that's the right word an executive within wall street so he knows it inside out um george is democracy do we need more equality when it comes to democracy we've had people on the show suggesting that too much too much equality can be bad for democracy are there um are, are, are there metrics are there uh, can we quantify what kind of equality or inequality is healthy for democracy? Well, it's all a question of de decree, uh, degree, uh, Andrew. Let me give you two numbers. The economy in the last 10 years grew 50% for the whole 10-year period. Wall Street grew up 400%. So somewhere the system has not been favorable to the people, to the general uh, economy, but it has been hugely favorable to shareholders. That's the question we have to ask ourselves. Don't we have a system that systematically favors the shareholders to the detriment of the people, the people who are work, working and so on and so forth? And as I put in the book, I am not a populist. So I'm not trying to wash out the capitalism, but there was an interesting book by Raghuram Rajan, who was at the IMF and is now the university. Yeah, and uh, he has been on the show before. Yeah, exactly. Well, he, he wrote several years ago a book called Saving Capitalism from the Capitalists. And that is really where we are. The people who benefit from the system have absolutely no restraint. 
And therefore, we've been going to a, to, to a series of problems. And now people are even not happy with what they have, and they create a series of new instruments and things like that. The result, FTX, uh, Silicon Valley Bank, Credit Suisse, you name them, one after the other, and Binance now. So at the, there is something unhealthy in the way uh, the market operators are actually allowed to operate. And of course, you could expect that during Trump years, nobody would restrict it. But I am a little bit disappointed that uh, the restrictions in, uh, in this administration have been very limited. But the increase of the debt has been substantial. Georges, the assault on democracy seems to be coming mostly from the right, from conservatives, at least in the US and, and, and perhaps in Europe too, with men like uh, or, uh, Orban in, in Hungary and perhaps even Maloney in, in Italy. Um, these conservatives seem to be ambivalent about your version of Wall Street capitalism. Uh, do, do you see an, a direct connection between the rise of right-wing anti-democratic authoritarianism, Trump, Orban style, and Wall Street? Because after all, it, it seems to be most of the people supporting Absolutely. these anti-democratic forces um, are poor, and they tend to be sympathetic to the attack on the establishment. Exactly. And that is what the book is about, is that the abuse that has been done by the people who are generally on the right-hand side of the spectrum, because that's where they make money. You know, <clears throat> a number of things, measures have been taken uh, in the past that were so favorable to companies or shareholders and unfavorable to the people that it becomes attention. Uh, Orban and Meloni and whatever are not really relevant, but what is really relevant is that you can see that in the US, the Republicans and the conservatives in the UK and so on, they are following the, the policy of what is called financialization of the economy, which is that basically everything is done in financial markets. It, this turns, though, the traditional political equation on its head, doesn't it, George? I mean, historically, it's the left, the working class left, um, progressive left, which has been opposed to, to democracy uh, or certainly to capitalism. Today, it seems to be the right. Um, how does that manifest itself in political terms? Does that make the left more conservative, more of the bulwark for democracy? You don't have a single answer among the countries, but it's extremely clear that the Labour Party will take over from the conservatives in the UK. I hope that the Democrats will win this presidential election. There are a lot of uh, changes that we are seeing, and the, the alignment seems to be much more clear where the Wall Street, quote-unquote, is the enemy of the people. And the people are on the left, not on the right. And it's clear that uh, when you see what uh, what the, 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 the debate at the moment is on the budget and on the problem of Ukraine and the war and immigration and so on, it's very, very fragmented. And therefore, uh, the problem is that we have not corrected the debt 
and we have not corrected the abuse. We are speaking with Georges Hugo, the author of Wall Street's Assault on Democracy, a very intriguing new book about the crisis of democracy and the crisis of inequality. Georges is a longtime uh, investor, uh, teaches now at Columbia University, was a VP at the New York Stock Exchange, his new book just out, Wall Street's Assault on Democracy, How, fa how Financial Markets Exacerbate Inequalities. It's having all sorts of implications. Um, this inequality, and particularly on culture. And one uh, publication that does a very good job addressing these issues is our sponsor, Liberties, a quarterly journal of culture and politics. I want to thank the guys at Liberties for helping bring such high-quality content and uh, guests like Georges Hugo. going to run a short feature about Liberties, and then we'll be back with Georges to talk more specifically about the crisis and what can be done. So don't go away, anyone. Beyond the news, the noise, there is nuance, insight. Liberties is not just a journal of ideas, it's a meteor of intelligent substance. It's the place to be for engaged citizens. Politics, opinion, substance. Liberties is a triumph for freedom of thought. A quarterly of urgency, of cultural exploration, of intellectual delight, of immaculate prose. It's invaluable. Subscribe now or find Liberties at your favorite bookseller. And you can subscribe to Liberties at libertiesjournal.com. We are speaking with Georges Hugo, the author of Wall Street's Assault on Democracy. Uh, it's the kind of book one historically would have found on the left. Now it's been written by a, a man who's dedicated his life to Wall Street in some ways. Georges, um, in your book, you begin in 2022. You describe it as the year when the veil of the temple was torn. What do you mean by that? Well, in 2022, we saw the market increase 150% and we were in the middle of the pandemic and the people couldn't find food and so on and so forth. This is probably the biggest demonstration that we have ever had of the markets going their way and the people being left behind. And I think that is why I took the example of November 2022, uh, because that is the moment where, by the way, probably not because they wanted to do it, but the central banks and the government and the governments all made the same thing, which is putting money in the system and making the people richer. Uh, George, some people are listening to this and thinking, well, there wasn't mass starvation during COVID and some of the government money went to the people. A lot of people were helped with uh, unemployment money, uh, other sorts of subsidies. What, what should the government have done in COVID? Just stayed out of it? No. I think the government did exactly what it had to do, but he did it too quickly and too much. Three trillion in one month was bound to fail. If we had done it with smaller amounts, maybe a trillion first and so on and so forth, we probably wouldn't have had the problem that we had. The second mistake that has been made, and I'm sorry to say that, but the lockdown has been ill-conceived. So when you create money in the hands of the people and the industry uh, and the, the, the economy is locked in, the only thing that you can expect is the, the price is going up, which is the inflation that came in. So in this kind of circumstances, you know that there is uh, uh, that the government miscalculated the size, the speed, 
and the consequences of what they have been doing. The basic franchise, which is to assist people who were hungry, was absolutely the right thing to do. Sure, some people, again, might be listening and thinking, well, this is all very well, and it's easy to criticize government, particularly government economic policy. Either they put too much in or not enough. But you had the rise of this anti-democratic authoritarianism, this hostility to organized capitalism before COVID. Uh, Trump was elected in 2016. Orban and these other authoritarians dominated the 20 teens. Uh, it, it seems as if people are simply pessimistic about economics, independent of economic reality. Can we blame Wall Street for this broader economic and cultural pessimism? You can't blame the the bankers and, uh, and, 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 and the bond traders for that, can you? In the book that I've written, I am talking about the collusion between government, central banks, banks and corporate and big corporates. This is something that they did together. It is not something that was just done by the brokers or by the traders. It is a very important thing to know that effectively during many years now, the governments have been the biggest support to the stock price. There is a chart in the book that shows the, that uh, the stock market increased very much with the assets held by the central banks. And it has nothing to do with the uh, uh, increase of earnings. It was just too much money chasing too few opportunities. And that money was government money. So what I'm trying to say is that the government, the central banks, the banks, and the corporates are in it together. But the government, what a government of the right or of the left, aren't they obligated to defend stock market share prices? We talked about the Wall Street cr crash and its catastrophic impact on democracy, both in the United States and certainly in Europe. If if the markets had crashed uh, after. Uh, after 2009 or in 2020, it wouldn't, what, what, what good would that have done? As I told you before, it's all a question of degree. They did too much. They used too much taxpayer money to boost the earnings of the capital with difficulties on the labor side. So this tension is back to haunt us. What about long-term structural reform, Georges? You talk in your book, for example, about reconciling shareholders and society. We've done a number of shows, including from leading bankers, about fundamentally re-architecting capitalism. Do you believe that's the case? Or is it, uh, to, to borrow some terms from you, is it just all a matter of degree? Do we need some more refined government reforms or do we need to, to to rewrite reorganize reshape the entire system the fact that you rebalance the system is painful we should have no illusion we've been living the last 10 years in a situation where we thought that everything would be free well we are at the point where it's no longer free and we have in uh, on our head a huge debt that the governments might not be able to finance. And therefore, the budget deficits are going to explode. The interest rates are going to continue to be high. So what does that mean? So the, the, the action that has to be done now is not to close the markets or anything like that. I mean, the, the typical Wall Street uh, uh, movement. No, it's about regulating 
It's about reducing the debt of the government. It's about reducing the balance sheet and making sure that the central banks take care of the problem of the central banks. Make sure that the corporates are not just manifested by the uh, uh, the interest of the shareholders. You know, there is something interesting. Nobody raises the question on share buyback that the reason why it's done is to make shareholders richer. <coughs> it increases the stock price, but it weakens the company because they have less equity. And uh, during the pandemic, when Delta was parading, saying that they had done everything to buy back their shares, the next thing they had to do is to go to the government and ask for 50 billion. So that's what doesn't work. I think, therefore, uh, that the corporates and the banks and the financial markets have to take their social responsibilities, not just their financial responsibility. But how can they, they do that? <laughs> Another chapter in your book deals with, with making investors accountable and what kind of accountability should that be? A lot of people believe that investors should be accountable when it comes to the destruction of the environment. Is this moral, economic, political accountability? I'm going to tell you, tell you what I have seen. I do meet CFOs of big companies and CEOs. And I remember a visit with a French company and the CFO was a former treasury uh, executive. He's a very nice guy and ask him, why on earth have you been buying back your shares? In your situation, you need all the capital you can use. He said, you're right, but the pressure of the investors is too high. The investors are trying to push the economy towards their own earnings. They are a very strong force, and it is very difficult for a CEO to infuriate its investors if he wants to keep his job because they, they are not going to have any hesitation to fire at the general meeting or otherwise a CEO who would by any chance not do what they want to do. But George, again, you don't need me to tell you this. One of the reasons why companies buy back shares is to drive up the short-term aspect of their price, which results in short-term profits. Lots of arguments about re-architecting Wall Street towards the long-term. Is that possible? Do you argue? for that in, in your book? I've been arguing for that and a number of people have for a long time. I would like, but that might be my optimistic side. I would like us to take seriously the elements of the situation that are in the book, which is today's situation and act on that to avoid having another financial crisis that would be enormous because of the of the fact that the debt of the government has increased by 10 times. And that is something that is unbearable. So we need to have a all hands discussion about how we will avoid something that could be much worse than 1919. Uh, 19. And therefore, uh, we need to be totally aware of the level of instability that we have now and the governments don't seem to pay attention. Do we need, uh, uh, Georges, new kinds of political parties? You talk about an all-hands discussion. I'm not sure whether that's possible, or maybe it's all too possible in our age of Facebook and X. There's too much all-hands discussion and not enough thoughtful discussion. Um, 
but are the political parties, both of the right and the left, are they adequate? Are they able to make sense of this? Or do we need parties with new messages, new ways of thinking about both capitalism and democracy? I am going to give you a story when I published a previous book and there was a minister of budget around the table. And I asked him, look, can you not go to the election and tell the people we have too much debt? So we will manage it carefully. We will avoid a financial crisis and it will be painful for the next three to four, five years. And they were adamant that they could not be reelected on that basis. And that goes back to an element that is also in the book is that you know as much as I do how much money goes from the corporate world to the political parties and to the politicians. So it's a, it's a collusion. They need each other. So they should have the possibility. I think they could do something much more helpful than the COP28 by having two weeks to discuss the debt. George, you mentioned uh, FTX and crypto earlier as a sort of a manifestation, I guess, of casino, corrupt casino capitalism. But can technology help here? Can we use AI to address this? If, if there was one way we could use AI, might it be to tell the truth about the economy or at least the truth that you think is so troubling? Yes, AI can be extremely helpful provided it is not going to be what it pretends to be. Because what it pretends to be doesn't make any sense and will never work. The reality is artificial intelligence has to happen in a sector by sector basis. Artificial intelligence in education, in healthcare, or in finance are totally different animals. So let's stop having this idea that there is a big mammoth there or an elephant in the room, which is called AI, because it doesn't exist. It is not a technology. That is what people don't understand. But you and I know how great the tech and the Silicon Valley, which is maybe my next book, have been able to manifest a level of self-confidence that is sometimes not reflected. And what we see now, just to take the crypto world, we've had so many bankruptcies and frauds in the crypto world. We knew it. We said that. And everybody was saying, you are a, you're a bad person. You don't understand. You're too old or you are too whatever. The reality is it was very clear that it was an empty bag from day one. And the reality is that the governments have not dared to approach it. On AI, they are acting differently because they took the lesson of the Bitcoin and they are now asking the people who are doing AI to come back to them and explain what they want to do. I don't think they need to regulate in a general term, but there is a need, and I published that at Columbia Law School Blue Block, there is a need for different regulations in different sectors inside their regulatory structure. And I am very concerned about something that, by the way, in one of your previous with David, uh, David Keane, one of your. Uh, yeah, that was earlier the week, uh... which is the inflation of the speech compared to the reality. 